You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good to see you this week, church family. Hope you're doing well. My name is uh, Shay Sumlin, if I haven't had the chance to meet yet, and I'm uh, so thankful you're here with us at Northway. And love to invite you, if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. And uh, we're going to continue our study in the book of Genesis. And, um, you know, on the heels of an awful week of evil and tragedy that is really compounded by only previous weeks of evil and tragedy, I want to share with you here this week um, a message of redemptive hope and a message, uh, I think, of relief and of rest in a day of evil and wickedness. And I want to do it through one of the most unlikely texts that you would expect to find it, which is in Genesis 5. And so as you're looking at Genesis 5, once again, a lot of names uh, that we find here this week. And um, we're looking at a a genealogy here in Genesis chapter 5. And I got to tell you right out of the gate, I'm unusually whether I like it or not, attracted to genealogies, part and parcel because this was my life growing up. My mom is a professional genealogist. And so while many of you spent your summers um, going and staying at the lake house and going to the cabins, and while many of you spent your time maybe going to Disney World, I spent my time drudging through cemeteries and going through courthouses and libraries and in basements of research records with my parents. We're going on vacation, they told me. We're going to go visit some states. And uh, and we did genealogical research. And this was all pre-internet days. So there's no easy shortcuts. It is going, finding tombstones, taking pieces of paper, and taking a pencil so you can make sure you get the image of who was buried there and then add it to the research record. And my mom gave herself to this work, and uh, she produced not just one, but two books that have been published uh, right here on her genealogical records pertaining to a number of lines that were connected to our family. And, you know, the, th- the interesting thing about genealogy, and, and I don't know, ask yourself this question. If you were going to have your name listed in a published record, for the rest of your life and beyond in a genealogy, such as like Genesis 5 or such as a book like this that's in the Library of Congress, when you find your name in that kind of genealogical record, what would you want to be said about you in that genealogy? What would you want recorded that people are gonna look back through the annals of time and know about you? Now, I don't know about y'all, but my mom when writing her first book, which by the way is the newbie book from England to America, 1996, all the way back to 1612. And that's the first volume. She keeps going all the way to the 1400s. You find some interesting things, by the way, in genealogies. You find out some fascinating people you're connected to. I found out through my mom's work that I am directly connected, not just once, but through two individuals that were actually on the Mayflower, direct descendants of two pastors of all people. You also find out some, the not so goods like Bloody Mary. When you find out you're connected there, you're like, I want to delete that one. When you think about um, 
uh, some of the long lines of tragedies. I mean, six generations back, I can count back as far as I can go, in my knowledge of divorces. Um, and you find out the good, the bad, and the ugly, but when you're going to find yourself recorded in this thing, you at least want something that's going to honor you well. But my mom decides to include a picture in this book, and you're gonna, it's a hard time for you all to see it, but this is my brothers and I, and she uses a picture that we took at Six Flags in one of those dress-up booths. So enshrined forever in this book is a picture of me dressed as an outlaw bank robber with some Jack Daniels in my hand the rest of my life. And this is how she describes me. Shay Sumlin is currently attending the University of North Texas. He's the chaplain of Sigma Nu Fraternity. He enjoys playing basketball. And yes, ladies, he is single. <laughs> I'm like, seriously? To which I say to my mom, mom, first of all, who are the prospects that are actually gonna be reading a book like this? From England to America, 1612 to 1996, that would become a prospective wife for myself. It's probably not the kind of circle that I'm swimming in right now. But nonetheless, this is what my mom does. But here's what's fascinating. This is what I've learned about genealogies from a Western perspective, from a Gentile perspective. When we come to these genealogies, whether it's 23andMe, sending off your DNA swabs, or whether it's Ancestry.com and joining the Mormon church, whatever you're going to do when you, you bring all these modern day ancestry uh, websites and platforms together, ultimately we are using them so that we can look back. We want to know who we're connected to. We want to know our origin stories. We want to know maybe how we got here. And we're just looking back. The vast difference between how a Western Gentile looks at a genealogy versus how someone in the ancient Near East and particularly Hebrew slaves who had just been delivered from 400 years of bondage in Egypt, who had been beaten, who had lost their identity in many ways, who had been enslaved and conquered by a pagan empire and now are heading into a new land where the same is waiting for them. When you read this, the main difference between us and them and how they would read is they're not reading to go back as much as they are reading of what's coming ahead. That is the main idea when it comes to a genealogy. It's not just taking you back, but it's taking you back so that you can know what is coming ahead. And what you're talking about here is you're talking about something that's more than just a genealogy to, to Hebrew slaves that are in the wilderness reading this. This is so that in the, in the midst of a world dominated by the way of Cain, by the line of Cain and all the evil fruit of that line that was on the earth at this time, you are recognizing that you are not a descendant of Cain, you are the descendant of a divine redemptive plan. That's what you're reading in Genesis 5. You are reading about how you are connected, not just to Adam, but to the line of Seth, not the line of Cain. And from the line of Seth, who gives birth to the line of Noah, and from Noah, who's gonna give birth to the line of Abraham, and Abraham, who's gonna give birth to Israel, and through Israel, gonna give birth eventually to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ, the promised one from the seed of woman, from Genesis 3.15, you are not just reading to go back, you are reading about what's ahead. This isn't just a genealogy in Genesis 5. It is a certified promise of hope in a dark day. 
Now, I'm going to read this genealogy to us here and then show you why I think ultimately this is here and how it matters for us today. Join with me here. Read along. As I read here in Genesis 5, starting in verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, and after he fathered Kenan, 815 years, he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived, and after he fathered Jared 830 years, he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, a couple reminders about why this genealogy is here. First of all, remember from last week, we are contrasting two lines that come out of Adam. God promised uh, when he cursed the serpent and Eve was hearing this, that through the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. And so they're anticipating And so we're trying to figure out which son of Eve is the promised one that God is going to send as a savior, as a Messiah. And we're starting by contrasting two lines, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. 
the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, as it were. Now, it's interesting, the line of Cain that we looked at last week has seven generations in it that lead right up into the time of the flood. The line of Seth, as we see here in chapter five, has 10 generations in it from Adam, and it leads all the way up until the time of the flood. These are two parallel lines that are running side by side on earth at the same time, populating the earth. Now, most genealogies in the Bible Uh, are not exhaustive genealogies. We don't have all the branches that are shooting off, all the tree limbs, as it were. We know each of these, we're told they fathered other sons and daughters. So we got lots of little lines going out. These are what are called telescoped genealogies. They are zooming in on one particular line that connects, not from everybody, but from this one person to this one person to this one person to this one person. We're tracing a redemptive arc. We're tracing a redemptive plan that heads towards Messiah. That's what's happening here. And oftentimes, not always, but many genealogies in the Bible are broken down into segments that are divisible by seven or 10. And that's no accident. That's there because seven is the number of completion, birth forth from Genesis chapter two, but also the number 10 will represent fullness. And even together, when you have divisions of seven times 10, such as Jesus sending out the 70 or the 70 nations that are coming out of the Tower of Babel, as we'll soon see, this represents the fullness of the nations, of God's redemptive plan for the nations. And what happens here is these are broken into sections. I mentioned this last week. We have these Toledot sections, 10 of them. Toledot's the Hebrew word for generations. And these are the generations of, and these are the generations of. We've seen one complete Toledot section so far is the Toledot, the generations of the heavens and the earth. The accounting of the heavens and the earth. And that was from chapter two, verse four, all the way to the end of chapter four. And now we are starting a second Toledot section. These are the generations of Adam. And they'll go from Adam to Noah, Adam to the flood. And then we'll start another generation there. But there's a pattern, if you notice this, throughout this entire chapter. It goes like this. Said person lived X amount of years, had a son, then lived X amount of years more, and then he died. And then next said person lived X amount of years, had a son, and then lived X amount of more years, and then he died. And the pattern continues all throughout this text. And you're meant to see that rhythm, that cadence, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's letting you know the curse that started with Adam is still in effect towards all humanity. That the curse is still playing out in death. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But at the same time, what's beautiful about this genealogy is in the first five verses, there are echoes of Genesis chapter one and two. We still see that when God created man in his own image, that didn't end with Adam. It didn't end when the curse entered in. It continues. Adam now has somebody in his likeness. And these image bearers begin to go out across the earth and the creation mandate from Genesis chapter one and two are still in play to subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. And he blessed them and it's still happening even under the canopy of the curse of sin. And you see another interesting scenario here of the long ages that are here. 
Seems like every single person, somewhere around 900 years old, roughly, give or take, in this passage. And that would certainly be necessary in the earliest days of humanity in order to populate the earth, these long lifespans. And long before sin begins to have its mutations, even biologically, on our bodies and on the earth, we're in a different kind of day. Now that day is about to change because once we get past Genesis chapter eight, once the flood has happened, you're gonna see people still live long ages into their hundreds, but the 900 days are done. Something has changed after Genesis Eight. We'll talk about that later, but those are some observations here. But for our time here this week, I want to draw your attention to what I believe is the cent- central intention of this genealogy that revolves around one particular person that is in this line of Seth, and his name is Enoch. And you see him here in verse 21. And I want to show you a picture that I think is very timely for us today of what a righteous life looks like when lived in the midst of a wicked day. And we're gonna see it through Enoch. Now, remember, this is the second Enoch that we have seen in these genealogies. The first Enoch, and the name Enoch, remember, means commencement. The first Enoch we saw was in chapter four, verse 17, and it was in the line of Cain, the wicked line of Cain. And what we saw in naming of Enoch in that line was we are commencing a life of rebellion apart from God that exists for the glory of man. But now we're introduced to a second Enoch who's in the line of Seth. And here under Seth's line, we are seeing another one who is now commencing a life that is quite the opposite. It's a life of righteousness that comes by faith in God's promise. Now, there are three aspects of Enoch, according to this text that I want to draw out for us this week. This is your outline. We're going to look at his walk, his word, and his reward. His walk, his word, and his reward. Let's look at his walk first. Notice in verse 21 and following, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 more years and then had other sons and daughters. Thus, the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now, one of the few things that we are given about Enoch in Genesis 5 is that he walked with God. Now, again, this would be in keeping with the contrast that we're seeing between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Remember in Seth's line, he starts by naming his first son Enosh, which means weakness, means mortal frailty. We're not gonna gonna challenge the curse through our own flesh apart from God. We're gonna recognize our humble dependence upon him. And then thus you see a whole generation rise up who cried out and worshiped to the Lord through Seth's line. And that just continues all the way down to Enoch here, who is a man who, who, who walks with God. This, the focus now centers in on this seventh person in the line of Seth. And that's fascinating. Do you remember who the seventh person was in the line of Cain? It was Lamech, wicked Lamech, this prideful polygamist murderer 
who represented the pinnacle of evil in that line, in his rebellion to God, wanting nothing to do with the presence and the provision of God. And that line was pervasive on the earth at this time, leading the earth into total moral decline. But now in the seventh line of Seth, and these lines are running parallel, they're on earth at the same time. It's no coincidence. You're going to see two Enochs and a moment see two Lamechs because they're around, they're naming each other. They heard, they knew. But now we have the seventh in the line of Seth and it's the total opposite of Lamech. He wanted everything to do with God. So much so that he walks closely with him in total dependence of faith upon God's presence and God's provision and certainly God's promise. Now we learn more about Enoch in the New Testament than we actually do in the Old Testament. That's what's fascinating. And so one of the things we learn about this walk with God comes in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we're walking through various figures in biblical history that represented faith in God in their day. Not perfect people, but people who trusted in God nonetheless. And Enoch's name is listed right here in verse five. And it says this, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Again, we'll look at that in a moment. But before he was taken, note this, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, this is a man who in the midst of an incredibly evil day walked with God in such a way that God was pleased with him. Now, the question is, What was it about Enoch's walk with God that was so pleasing to God? Well, according to Hebrews 11.5, it was Enoch's faith. His faith, his trust in God. He's not leaning in his own strength, leaning into his own wisdom, leaning into his own flesh. He was leaning into God. He believed God's promises. This man, unlike Lamech, who was in the seventh in the line of Cain, that was all around him, filling the earth, trusting in themselves and their own innovations in order to try to mediate the curse somehow, only leading to more evil. This man is trusting in God and the provision of God to do something about the curse that he couldn't do. And in his faith in God's promise, it yielded in him a righteousness. And we see elsewhere, all throughout the Bible, these little hints of what it looks like for an individual to actually walk with God. Let me give you a few examples of how the Bible would characterize what a walk with God entails, what it will show. One of the things we see all throughout scripture is that of intimacy with God, that there's rich communion with God. When we are walking with God, we are walking in tandem with God. We are, we are having dialogue with God. We are experiencing intimacy with the God who created us and has redeemed us. God the Father with his children in close relationship. We see a delighting in his presence all throughout the scriptures. Not only intimacy, but a great delight in his presence of all the other joys that this world can offer that are good common graces to enjoy. Nothing satisfies the soul for the one that is walking with God than the sheer delight of being in God's presence. It's where they constantly want to run to. And not only that, we see Evidence of walking with God by trusting in his word, by abiding in his word, of all the voices of counsel that are out there trying to disciple us and sway us. 
One who walks with God recognizes there's no greater voice to sustain life and flourishing than the voice of God. We savor the truths of his word. We delight to take them to heart and usually in addition applies itself in wisdom. Not just knowledge about God, but knowledge applied that we believe God so much that we actually put into action the counsel of his word in our life, showing our trust in him. And so these these characteristics, there's a leaning on his strength. It's not our strength, it's his strength. All these things are descriptions of what in the scriptures of what walking with God looks like. And the question is, can this be said the same of us as it was for Enoch? That in a wicked and perverse day around us, with the way of Cain on full display, whether it be in a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, whether it be in the Southern Baptist Convention, whether it be in Uvalde, Texas, in an elementary school, can it be said of us in any sphere of our life where the way of Cain is on display? that we are marked off by something totally different, that we have such a dependency upon God, such an intimacy with God, such a delight in God's presence, such a following after his wisdom, such an abiding in his word and leaning on his strength that the world would stop and go, there is something incredibly different about that person. They walk with God. Something like Paul wrote to the Philippian church in Philippians 2.15, when he says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Something about Enoch that stood out in his day when the way of Cain was dominant and it was a close walk with God. Enoch more than anything else, is marked by his walk with the Lord. But he's also noted for something else here, not just his walk, but also his word, meaning his message that he preached in his day to the generation around him. And this is fascinating. Watch this, notice in verse 22, it explicitly says that it was only after Enoch had a son that he began to walk with God. Now question, what is it about having a child after 65 years? We don't know what he's doing prior to the 65 years, apparently not walking with God or not walking as close with God. And then he has a child at 65 and all of a sudden it propels him into intimacy with his heavenly father. What is it about that? Now, any parent in the room would probably go, once you have a kid, then you know. There's just something about having a child that thrusts you into the arms of the Lord to go, Lord, Help me! And that's certainly true, but I'm gonna tell you that's actually not true right here. What we are gonna find out is that there was something about this particular boy, Methuselah, that served as a warning for God, from God that would jumpstart the rest of Enoch's life into not only walking with God, but taking up a preaching mantle of preaching the word of God to the wicked generation around him. The name Methuselah, y'all know what the name Methuselah means? It means after he dies, judgment comes. 
dare you to name your kid after that one. It's a little odd name right there. Hey, you know what we're going to name him, honey? We're going to name him after he dies, judgment comes. Oh, sounds great. Where did that come from? Well, many scholars believe, and I would agree and affirm this, that apparently at some point in Enoch's life, after God had washed an entire generations, multiple generations of Cain's line, began to populate the earth and take it on moral descent through their rebellion and sin towards God, at some point, God grabs Enoch. And at some point he tells Enoch, Enoch, I'm gonna use you to bring a halt to this. We're gonna end this wickedness. I'm not gonna watch this anymore. I'm gonna bring down my justice. And I'm gonna use you, Enoch, because you're gonna have a son and you're gonna, you're gonna know that when that son dies, that's when my justice is coming. That's when my judgment on the earth is coming. And what's interesting, that's why he names him Methuselah. Why are you gonna name a kid Methuselah unless you've been given that revelation? After he dies, judgment comes. And when you add up all the other uh, ages of this text and the order in which they're in, you know what's fascinating? Methuselah will be the last one standing prior to Moses. Methuselah is gonna outlive his own children. Methuselah is gonna outlive his own son. And he will be the last one that will die of the righteous line of Seth before the next generation of Noah encounters the judgment that is coming. And it's interesting because the point is this revelation of a judgment that is about to come upon the earth, this is enough to wake Enoch up, to usher him into a closer walk with the Lord and now sets him ablaze with a preaching ministry for the rest of his days to warn as many people as he can of the judgment that is coming and call them to repentance. Now, where did we get that? Once again, we know a lot more about Enoch from the New Testament than we even we do from Genesis 5. Do me a favor, hold your place in Genesis 5, flip over to the very back of your Bible with me, just before the book of Revelation is the book of Jude. Turn over there, and I want to show you a passage that tells us exactly what Enoch was doing when he was on the earth in this day. Jude, starting in verses 14 and 15, we are told this, that it was, about, it was also about these, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, I want you to notice first, this is a quote that is taken from somewhere else about Enoch. This quote, we know where it comes from. It actually doesn't come from anywhere else in your Bible. It comes from a book that exists outside of our Bible that was written about 200 BC, and it was known as the book of Enoch. And the reason that book did not make it into the canon of scripture is all you have to do is read that book and you'll know why, because it's laced with heresy. But there are some aspects within that book that are historically accurate, and apparently one of these was some insight 
that apparently had been um, preserved through uh, Jewish fathers that had been passed down orally throughout history and now used by the Holy Spirit to be quoted here and put into our Bible concerning exactly what Enoch was doing when he found himself walking with God in the midst of a wicked day. And it talks about his preaching ministry. When it tells us, behold, essentially the Lord is coming and he's coming to execute his judgment against all the ungodliness that is on the earth. Four times you're gonna see that word ungodly in that verse that we read here in Jude. And it's very interesting, ungodly people who do ungodly things in ungodly ways with ungodly speech. Sounds like this was written in 2022. Sounds like this was taken off a Twitter feed right here. And yet it's speaking about Enoch's day all indicative of how bad it was on the earth when Enoch had lived. And so Enoch stands in the gap in a wicked day and he preaches God's judgment as he called people to repentance. And he believed the message so much that judgment was coming after his son dies that he named his son Methuselah, which shows that He also believed there was a timestamp on evil. There was a timestamp on God's justice. There was a mark today when God was going to invoke justice upon the earth. And what's interesting about Jude's account, it's actually prophetic perfect. It's not just speaking about the judgment that was on the, the wickedness on the earth in his day, but he's speaking about the judgment that would come long after the flood when Christ returns, the Messiah returns. But he knows there's a timestamp on it. Now, that being said, Enoch stands in this gap and he preaches this message of judgment. Judgment is coming, you need to repent. But here's what I want you to see. Turn back to Genesis chapter five. I want you to see that laced within this message of judgment is also a message of hope for those of us in a wicked day, just as there were in Enoch's day. Notice in verse 25, Methuselah, is gonna name his son Lamech. Once again, second time we've heard the term Lamech, the name Lamech. So two Enochs, two Lamechs. You remember the first Lamech. Now, by the way, Lamech means conqueror. And the very first Lamech was in the line of Cain, the wicked line of Cain. And this was the guy seven deep into that line that boasted about his murder, bragged to his two wives that he had, dared anybody to try to take him out, that God's gonna protect him and just mockery, mockery, mockery. And what that Lamech was doing is he is boasting about how he is gonna conquer the curse that is on the earth through his own revenge, through his own flesh, through his own strength, through his own vile self. He's gonna conquer through revenge. But then there's the second Lamech that's right here in the line, the righteous line of Seth. And he too is a conqueror, but he understands that his conquering is not gonna come through himself, but it's gonna come through the one who will bring rest, rest upon an earth that has been afflicted by the curse of sin and has broken humanity. Two different Lamechs right here. He understood this Lamech, the message that was preached by his grandfather, Enoch. 
And he understood that once his dad dies, Methuselah, that God would not only send judgment upon the earth for the wicked, but within that judgment would come rest for the righteous, would come relief for the righteous who are suffering. And you see it there in verse 29. And he called his name Noah, saying out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us Noah, which means relief, which means rest. And he'll bring rest, he'll bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, truth be known, Noah wasn't going to be the final rest for God's people. But as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, from chapter 6 through chapter 8 with the account of the flood, Noah is going to serve as a picture of our final rest that will come through the Messiah. In Noah's day, judgment will come. As soon as Methuselah dies, Noah's the last man standing in that line, and judgment will come upon the earth through a flood and God will wipe the slate clean of all the wicked acts of the line of Cain. And God in doing so will preserve one family on the earth, the only one left in this line of Cain, of Seth. And that's Noah. He's gonna preserve Noah and Noah's family and he's gonna do so through a wooden life raft that will rescue Noah from that judgment and ultimately lead him to new life. All of it is a foreshadow, as we'll soon see. Of the one, that's a foreshadow of the one who is going to come, not in Noah himself, but through the seed of Noah, which is ultimately the seed of Eve. That line, that righteous line, it's going to come through Noah's line. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. If you trace the line again, all the way back, Luke chapter three, and you start with Adam to Seth and you go all the way, it takes you to Bethlehem with Jesus Christ. And what we'll see is that this Messiah will come and he too will spare us from the judgment of God once and for all that will come upon the earth. And he will do so through a wooden life raft known as the cross, whereby he will shed his blood, covering us from the wrath, the just wrath of God that will be poured out upon all wickedness on this earth, which would normally include you and I as well, because wickedness is not something that's just out there. It's in here. It's in every one of us. And yet for those who cling to Jesus by faith, They shall be saved through his work on that life raft, through his work on that cross. And we will then enter in one day to the fullness of his rest. It's no wonder why Jesus said in Matthew 11, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you Noah. I'll give you rest. It's the reason why in Hebrews chapter four, the author of Hebrews says to all who believe upon Jesus Christ as the Messiah, you will enter into his Noah, his rest. And so it's interesting here, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah, they couldn't see it all in 2020 like we can today on this side of the cross. All they knew is that God promised a son 
would come through Eve's line and who would deliver them from the curse of sin. And they hoped in it and they trusted in it. They believed that God would provide. And so that's the message that Enoch preached in his day. Judgment is coming, but for those who trust by faith in God's promise and in God's provision, apart from us, but by his grace that is provided, that rest can be theirs too. That's his message. That's his word. And you know what's amazing about that message being preached to a wicked generation? Is God is exceedingly patient. Do you know Methuselah? Methuselah always gets the press in the Bible for one thing. Shows up in trivia games all the time. Shows up in trivial pursuit. Who's the oldest person in the Bible? Methuselah, 969 years. Give me another peg to put in my thing. That is what Methuselah is known for. He is just Mr. Trivia Guy, the oldest guy in the Bible. But do you know that is, there's more there to him? Because when you understand this account, you actually come to realize what his age actually represents. It represents the patience of God for sinners who are perishing. Let me put it this way. What, what would you think if God told you that you were going to have a son? And once your son dies... He's going to judge the whole earth and people better have time to repent. And then your son only lives to about 23 years old. What would you think about God? And that wasn't very long, God. Very impatient. Can we have a little bit longer to give people time to repent? But what would you think if your son lived to be the oldest person in the Bible for a reason? 969 years. What would you think about God then? You know what you'd think? You'd think the same thing that Peter thought in 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, Methuselah is a picture of God's patience. It's a picture of God's mercy to sinners like you and I who are in the midst of our own rebellion who gives us time to be brought to our own humility, that we would bend the knee and put our trust in him and repent of our sins. See, God is merciful and long-suffering towards sinners, even the most wicked and vile among us. And to think that more time existed between Adam to Noah than has existed between Jesus to us. God has been incredibly patient with us. Aren't you glad, by the way, for those of you that have come to faith in the last 10 years that Jesus didn't return 10 years ago and invoke his justice on all the wicked on the earth? Aren't you glad that his patience in holding off his justice was actually kindness to you that led you to faith in him? That's the mercy of God. Well, one last thing we need to consider about Enoch as we close this out, and that is his reward. Notice one of the grand themes in all the chapter here. It's on repeat eight times. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Paul, the apostle Paul, is gonna build off of this and form his theology in the New Testament based, I think, starting here on chapter five. And that is, 
one of the proofs, the unchallengeable truths that sin existed before the 10 commandments from Adam forward is that death reigned. Romans 5, 17. One of the undeniable proofs that sin has been on the earth long before we even add categories to, to, to label it and define it is because death has always been a part of the human experience. It's one of the reasons why I know sin is not just something we do. It's actually innate in who we are when we are conceived in sin, brought forth in iniquity. Why? Because Adam is our federal head, sinned, and all of us are in him. And so we saw Genesis 2, the day that you eat of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And now death has been a part of the human experience. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. One of the reasons we know that sin exists in the world is because death exists. And every one of us in here, since sin is in all of us, then all are going to die. Everyone here. And unless the Lord returns, you and I will taste that experience of death. But through Enoch here, this is what's beautiful. We're given just a little trailer for what life will be like for those who trust in the promise of God, that death will not have the final say. You see that in verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not. It doesn't say he died. It's the only one that doesn't say he died, that God took him. Now remember Hebrews 11 gives us commentary on this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Brother just got straight raptured right here in Genesis 5. No other way to explain it. Only two fallen sinful human beings in all of the Bible get this experience right here. And it's Enoch and Elijah. Just get straight taken up. Don't even taste death like the rest of us. And such, as such, Enoch proves also here to be the youngest person in this whole genealogy at the young old age of 365. And we don't know all the details that God just said, come on up here. But we do know why. It's because of his faith. And I think in a chapter full of sin and death, Enoch gets to represent what life will be like for all of us who cling to the promise of Messiah that this life doesn't have to be the end, that death will not have the final say. So church, why is this text here? More than just a page of names that we might skip over, more than just a fun connection to 23andMe right here, this genealogy, like Israel of old, connects not just them, but all of us to our redemption story not just looking back at our biological genealogical tree, but looking ahead at the redemptive promise. And anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ now walks in the footsteps of Seth, Adam and Eve, of Noah, of Enoch, of Abraham, who believed that God would provide and they trusted him for it. And anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ that promise is given to us. This is our line all the way to Jesus. And so church, amidst the wicked day that we are in, and oh, we are in a wicked day. Past few weeks have been awful. 
whether it be the atrocities in a Korean hair salon here in Dallas, atrocities of a predominant African-American supermarket in Buffalo, New York, Southern Baptist Convention, or again, elementary school in Uvalde. I think two takeaways that we can have is one, we can be encouraged that the God who makes promises keeps them. God's not just a promise maker, he's a promise keeper. And because of that, evil and death will not have the final say for those who are in Jesus Christ. Justice will come and rest will follow all through Jesus. And then in light of that encouragement, you and I can be courageous. Courageous to walk like Enoch walked to be men and women who choose to walk with God when all others wander, to be men and women who choose to believe the promise of God when all others reject it. And that we too, like Enoch, would be men and women who believe that rescue and that rest has been made available. And so we spend all of our days, whatever we got left on this earth, proclaiming to a wicked generation that that same rest can be made available to them too and that we would invite them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if they will not do that, then rest assured the God of justice will bring forth the due recompense for their sin and rebellion. Church, may we be encouraged this day to be like Enoch and be men and women who walk in righteousness in a wicked day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that's in this passage so very timely to the day that we are in. As bad as Enoch's day was, it feels very similar today. That you, O oh God, would look upon the earth and see nothing but the sinfulness of man. And oh, how you would have every right to wipe the slate clean, wipe the slate clean again today with us if it weren't for your mercy, if it weren't for your grace, your patience, and not seeing, wanting to see any perish, but all come to faith. God, thank you for the mercy you've given us in Jesus Christ. Help us to rest in him today, that we don't have to work to accomplish the reversal of the curse that you have worked on our behalf through Jesus Christ. And until that day when full justice comes, until that day when full rest comes for us, oh Lord, would you find us faithful, faithfully proclaiming your word, faithfully walking with you, again, until that day when you come and you take us home. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.